Man, it's so good to see everybody this morning. You doing well this morning? You doing well this morning? Amen. All right, man, what a wonderful thing to celebrate today. So I'm approaching almost four years of being the pastor here at University Baptist Church. That'll come uh, this fall. And when we made that change, we made, when we made that shift in our family, uh, it was, you know, uh, an exciting time in our life, but they, you often hear that any change is stressful, even if it's good change, right? It creates a certain level of, of stress in your life. And so while we were very excited to make the move, we obviously knew that we were going to have to kind of anticipate, sorry, my son was playing with this microphone when I was holding him during worship. Let me get this back in place. And so we were getting ready to anticipate this change. And we knew that we were going to have to cope with some of it because that's what you do with stress, right? You have these coping mechanisms to help you feel a little bit better and adjust to it. And so uh, we were looking for some of those coping mechanisms and we opted for chickens. That was the coping mechanism. And I literally, my wife called me one day and she said, listen, if you're going to take this job, I want chickens. And that seemed like a reasonable trade in my mind. So I was like, all right, let's do it. And so we got chickens. And I will tell you that that began over the last four years, this whole new life of having chickens in our home, not in our home, in our backyard. And, and I was unprepared for so many different things that come with owning chickens. I was unprepared for how cheap they are, and they are cheap. Uh, I was kind of surprised by that. I was unprepared at how long it took for them to first start laying eggs. It takes them quite a while. That was kind of, I'm not going to lie, I had some resentment towards them for a while. because like, well, well, you're not a good pet. You know, like you need to produce. You need to earn your keep here at some point. And then they do. And I was unprepared at like how many eggs they would lay and how great that was. And then I was unprepared that sometimes they go on strike and they stop laying eggs just to kind of make sure that you're still grateful. And, and that was hard because then you go to the grocery store and you're actually buying a carton of eggs and you just are angry about it. You're like, I shouldn't have to buy these things. It's two bucks, you know, but you're still upset that you're spending $2 on eggs. I was unprepared for so many things. One of the other things I was unprepared for was their lifespan. Um, chickens can die early at a young age. Uh, but probably the number one thing that's going to jeopardize their lifespan is predators, okay? I was unprepared for predators. I remember one time we had gotten a new chicken, and this is something else I didn't really realize, is that if you already have a group of chickens and you get a new one, you, you can't just introduce it into the, the, the group. That's where you get the phrase pecking order, right? I've seen that lived out. It's, it's not a pretty sight. And so you keep the new chicken uh, to the side and kind of let them grow and develop. And so we had this separate crate for one of these chickens, this little white chicken that we had. And it was, it was separate from the coop. And we had it out in the driveway, still kind of behind the garage. And I remember one evening we came home where the whole family was in the car and we pulled in the driveway and I noticed the coop was not, or the, the cage was not in the spot that we had left it. Kind of been pulled out a little bit in the driveway. And right as we pulled into the driveway, the headlights kind of shined uh, in uh, towards the back part of the fence. And I saw this raccoon run up and jump on the top of the fence and scramble into the neighbor's yard. And I knew, right? So like I stopped and I was like, children, look away, you know, and don't, don't get out of the car. And I got out of the car and confirmed everything that you would have suspected. It was terrible. And you would have thought I would have learned from that incident, but I didn't. And so a couple weeks later, uh, we got up one morning, kids were in school, and we walked out into the backyard and we noticed that the chicken coop had this broken part of the chicken wire. And some predator, we don't know which one, probably the raccoon, coming back for seconds, had broken through the chicken coop in carnage everywhere. I mean, it was, it was, ter it was a sad day in the Smith household, let me just tell you that. And so we got more chickens, right? That was the way that we adapted to that. We got more chickens, but this time we were going to be prepared, right? So we got a new chicken coop. 
I ordered a whole bunch of extra chicken wire and I like fortified that thing like crazy. I mean, I had double layers to it. When we put the chicken coop back in its place, we put stones down there, it had kind of like a stone surrounding so things couldn't dig underneath and get into it. And ever since then, if I'm not mistaken, we have not lost a chicken to a predator. Thank you very much, right? It took some hard, thank you, thank you. It took some hard work, took some tough lessons, but that was, that was a, a learning curve in the process. And all of it was because of preparation, right? And we all have these examples, some trivial, some significant of moments in our life where we were unprepared. And through the learning curve of going through those pitfalls, going through those struggles, we begin to prepare ourselves so that we can better guard against any sort of pitfalls that may come in the future. This is really kind of what we're living through right now, is it not? I mean, that, that's so much of what we're dealing with with this pandemic, preparation, right? When we first went into a quarantine, it wasn't, hey, let's hope the virus disappears, right? It was, we need to be prepared. We need to protect our medical infrastructure. We need to get PPE, ventilators, beds, all these different things it's about preparation. You think about school right now and all these conversations about start dates and virtual learning platforms, all of it is an effort to try to be prepared. Think about when the quarantine first took place. Everybody ran to the grocery store and bought an insane amount of toilet paper, right? Because you wanted to be prepared, I guess, you know? And so all of what we're dealing with right now in some form is, is a response of preparation because we've had those moments of what happens when we're not prepared. And so that's what this passage is really driving us to, right? That the one thing that truly is going to prepare you for this inevitable conflict against evil that we talked about last week is the armor of God. The only chance you have to stand your ground against the challenges, the conflicts, the, the spiritual forces of the evil world, right? That it's not against flesh and blood, it's against all these other things. The only chance you have is to put on the armor of God. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves this morning and through this series is, are you prepared? Are you truly? Like if you think about what you're facing, what you're encountering right now, have you truly prepared yourself to live the life that God has called you to live, to withstand the trials, the tribulations, the circumstances, the, the, the forces that are gonna come in to try to steal and kill and destroy? Have you prepared yourself to stand your ground? Well, that's what Paul is trying to awaken the church to do with this passage. So what I wanna do is I wanna read the passage of the armor of God in its entirety, right? We're only gonna focus in on one verse this morning, verse 14, and so I'll draw our attention to that. But I want us to hear it in its fullness as we read it this morning, okay? So following along in Ephesians chapter six, we're gonna pick it up in verse 10. Again, if you don't have a Bible, let us know. We will get you one and make sure that you have that in your possession. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter six, starting in verse 10, he says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything to stand, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist and the breastplate of righteousness in place. And with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. 
Let me call your attention back to verse 14, our focus verse for this morning. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist and with the breastplate of righteousness in place. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we think about what it means to be prepared, and I pray that all of our hearts in this morning and in this moment would be open to all it is that you want to teach us and show us. God, we confess that there are too many times where we miss what is true. We miss what is good and right. And so help us to press into your truth. Help us to press into your righteousness, God, that we would be prepared to stand firm in this world and bring glory to you. God, we thank you for the opportunity and the privilege to gather as your church and to be stirred and encouraged by your word. Father, may we receive your teaching, may we receive your spirit, that we may give you the glory you so richly deserve. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, so Jesus was arrested, and then Pi, uh, Peter denies Jesus three different times. And at this point in the story in John 18, the Jewish leaders, they bring Jesus to the Roman governor. And when Pilate begins to inquire about the charges against Jesus, they say, well, listen, he's a criminal. We wouldn't bring him to you otherwise, right? Of course he's a criminal. Well, Pilate wants to know a little bit more about that, and he says, but you have laws. You've got your own regulations. Why wouldn't you just go ahead and try him according to your laws and your standards? And this answer that they provide to Pilate in this moment reveals the intent that they really had, what they were really after. They said, well, we don't have the right to execute anyone. So now Pilate realizes the seriousness of what's taken place, that they want this man dead. And so he comes up to Jesus and he starts this conversation with him. And he asks him, he says, so are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus responds to this question like he does so many other questions, right? He asks his own. Well, where did you hear that? Is that your idea or has someone been talking to you about me? And so Pilate responds and says, well, am I a Jew? Your own leaders brought you here. Your, your own chief priest. So what wrong have you done? Jesus gives another explanation saying, now listen, my kingdom's not of this world. If it were, my servants would have fought to protect me, to prevent my arrest, to prevent me from being brought to you. But my kingdom is of another place. And so then Pilate, after hearing this, asked him, and he says, so you are a king. And Jesus says, you call me a king, but the reason I was born, the reason I was sent here was to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And after hearing that answer, Pilate asks a question that all of us seem to ask throughout our lives. He says, what is truth? That's the question. What is truth? And how in the world do we foster it? How in the world do we know it? And how do we live according to it in this world and in this age? Right? That's what Paul is trying to address. And that's the first point of emphasis here in this Armor of God series. And he points us to the armor of God to create this imagery. And I love what, what uh, Kevin said earlier. He could have just listed out these characteristics. But by giving us the image of the armor of God, he heightened and strengthened his message. In his points, okay? And so what I want to do this morning is first try to understand the imagery of the armor of God and then better understand the, the terms of truth and righteousness and then bring it into our context, okay? 
And so when you think about the imagery of God or the armor of God, the imagery that Paul has just laid out here, when you hear the idea of a belt, it's different than what we uh, would experience, right? I like the, the uh, I guess, connection that Kevin made in the sense that it gives us something tangible that we can utilize in our own lives to remind ourselves of it. But if you really want to know in terms of how it functioned in the Roman soldier's suit of armor, it was very different. It didn't have what we had. And part of what we're seeing here by this reference to the belt is the essential quality of it. Right? I, there have been numerous times I've been out and I forgot my belt. And my thought is, ah, dang it. Oh, well. And I just keep on going. You know what I mean? But when you're talking about the belt that's being referenced here, this was most likely referring to the leather apron that went underneath, went underneath every other piece of armor. Okay? And so everything was attached to it. You, you couldn't put on the rest of the armor without this piece. It was essential. So part of what we're seeing in the emphasis here is that without truth, none of these other qualities make sense. You don't know what salvation is. You don't know what gospel is. You don't know what, what uh, righteousness is without truth. It is essential, right? It also has this connotation of, of being fastened, right? Being, being buckled around your waist, that sort of message. And part of what you see, especially in the context of armor, is that that implied readiness, okay? It goes back to our concept of preparation, right? That, that when you loosened the belt and the armor, it was when you were just stepping away from battle. When you fastened the belt and the armor, it was this vigilance. It was this, this passion, this readiness. And so you have to have truth to be ready. You have to have truth to be prepared. If we're going to withstand the forces of evil, the challenges, the obstacles that come our way, without truth, it's going to catch us off guard, right? So it's essential, right? It readies you. Now, the breastplate of righteousness, the breastplate went from, from neck to thigh, and it was typically referred to by Polybius as the heart protector. I love that, right? That, that makes sense in and of itself, right? The righteousness of God is going to be what protects our hearts. When you get older, you realize that there are certain parts of your body, certain organs that are just more important than the others, for lack of a better term. While you need all of it, you can withstand a broken arm, you can recover from a broken leg, but if something happens to your heart and your head, right, that's something that needs some serious protection, right? And so the righteousness of God, right conduct, right that is going to be an essential quality to protect your heart. And so, so to better understand how they fit together, let me try to give you a little bit more explanation in terms of what these terms actually mean. Truth means exactly what you think it means. It's, it's something that's solid, something that is uh, transparent, that has been revealed, something firm, secure. A lot of times in the scripture, but it's being referred to a person that's speaking of their, their speech, their action, their conduct. It carries this idea of integrity, right? And so it's that firm understanding of truth. Now, what we also see in the scriptures is that truth can be taught, right? That truth coincides with God. God is truth. So his law is true. His precepts are true. And what that means for you and me is that we can learn truth by learning about the things of God, by following his word, by following his scripture, okay? So that's truth. Righteousness is somewhat similar. Righteousness has a root connotation of justice, right? That's the root that it comes from. And it's, it's also this idea of right conduct or right relationship, right? It, it also kind of speaks to integrity. And so when you understand those terminations or those terms and those definitions, you can see how they relate to one another, right? That, that you can't really understand what justice is and what is right conduct or what a right relationship with God looks like without truth. 
right? It, it's gonna define all those things. And at the same time, if you are going to, to be righteous, if you're going to pursue justice, if you're going to have a right relationship with God, then you're going to live according to truth, right? So they're, they're very intricately connected and they're incredibly essential for you and me today. Why? Because we are living in a time when in, well, you could maybe make an argument, it's always been this way, but for sure for us, where we have a truth problem of pretty tremendous proportions, right? We're living not just in the middle of a pandemic uh, that speaks to a virus and a health concern, but we're living in an epidemic of misinformation. And it is all over the place. Right? Just some recent examples, while I imagine that you could all think of your own, just related to the coronavirus and the misinformation that has spread, there was an article that was uh, published in BBC recently, just this past week, and I was reading through it, and there was a study that was done that talked about the impact of some of the misinformation that has coincided with the coronavirus. Somewhere in the neighborhood of, uh, one, this one particular study was focused on uh, somewhere here in the US, and it talked about 5,800 different hospitalizations, 800 deaths, because of people buying into what they thought was credible medical information of how to prevent contracting the virus by large consumption of garlic, large consumption of vitamins, and they, they bought into it and it actually cost them their lives. We, we've seen the results of violence, we've seen the results of arson and all sorts of, of terrible displays as a result of misinformation. We, and, and just conspiracy theories, right? One of the things that was referenced in this article is that 28% of Americans believe that Bill Gates wants to use the vaccine to plant microchips into people. 28%, right? People are falling into all sorts of misinformation and there are numerous examples and we're all living in it right now. It's another way that you can categorize it is the death of expertise. Have you heard that phrase before? So the death of expertise kind of, I think, also helps speak to why this is such a problem of misinformation in our culture today. So, so the first time I ever heard about this uh, was several years ago, and, and there's a book actually out there now by a guy by the name of Tom Nichols, who is a professor at, um, I think he does U.S. Foreign Affairs at like the U.S. Naval War College, something, I can't remember the specific uh, unit or, or department that he's in, but he wrote a blog post in 2013, okay, so seven years ago. And he kind of used that phrase, and that phrase has been a while, along a while, around a while. He didn't come up with it, but he referenced it. Somebody wrote him and said, hey, that's a really good blog post. Could you turn it into an article? Turned it into an article, went kind of viral, and then it turned into a book. And so I think he published the book in 2016. So again, several years ago. But part of what his premise is, if you can follow along with it, is here we have this, this heightened, overexposed, where information is just so readily available nonstop. But what's happened is it hasn't really created an informed, educated public, but an ill-informed, angry public that refuses to listen to any other form of expertise because all voices are equal, right? That's essentially what the death of expertise means. Everyone has a platform now. Everyone has a voice. Everyone has a statistic. Everyone has a metric, a data, a theory that you can subscribe to. And as a result, I don't have to listen to anybody that would claim themselves to be an expert. So I can go on WebMD and be as smart as my doctor. I can read Wikipedia and be as smart as the next politician or diplomat, right? And this is the, the era that we're living in, right? This, this heightened sense where everybody's truth is their truth and they can find whatever data they need to substantiate it. Okay? So the question becomes, how did we get there? Like, how, how did this develop? 
right? And so here's what Nichols would suggest. Nichols would point to several things. One is just this innate tendency that we all have towards confirmation bias. You guys know what confirmation bias is, right? I'm gonna instinctively seek out sources that are gonna confirm what I already believe, right? That is a human tendency, right? And, and so back in the day, that was harder to do when there was fewer sources and information and you really had to have expertise to have a platform, right? And so you could have a bias, but if you couldn't get it confirmed, well, then you had to kind of surrender it. Well, guess what? You can confirm any bias today, right? And so that has been heightened. I can find anything to substantiate what I believe. So that's number one is that tendency. Number two he points to is our education system. He said part of what's happened at higher levels of learning is we shifted from looking at students as learners to looking at them as clients, right? There's, there's a money economic impact. And so we cater to our clients and it's customer service. And so people are graduating with degrees in, in pieces of paper that would uh, identify some level of expertise, but they haven't really learned the same level of critical thinking that used to be in place. He points to technology, obviously, right? We have such a proliferation of information that everybody's got that platform. That's played a massive role in it. He points to, to news and the changes there that we now have 24-hour nonstop news that has really been shifted more towards entertainment than it has information. News that is figuring out what the niche market is, what people's biases are, and it's telling them what they want to hear so that they'll keep watching rather than what they need to know, right? And so we have a, a wide reaction of all these different news platforms. He talks about um, the problem of the fact that we have a history where experts were wrong, right? There are many things that we can point to where somebody that was given that sense of power or trust made the wrong decision and it broke that trust. And so now there's skepticism. So he points to a lot of different things, but you know what he says underneath it all that really caught my attention? This I thought was really telling and I also thought was fairly accurate. Here's the theme that he points out beneath all of it is pride. He says, we live in an age of resolute narcissism. Decades of being told to focus on our own needs combined with rising standards of living, the evaporation of both external and internal threats that once bound us together have now left too many of us alone in front of our computers or television, insulated from any information that does not please us or affirm our pre-existing biases. We are swaddled in a sense of sullen, unfulfilled entitlement that makes self-correction and continued learning almost impossible. Ouch. I mean, he doesn't hold back there, but I think he's right. Right, I do. I think there's a lot of truth to that, that that we have insulated ourselves and can continue to confirm our own biases, that the idea of self-correction and continued learning has become increasingly difficult, right? Now, I would point to one other thing, right? So part of what I ask when I see those sorts of assessments of our culture is, but, but why, right? Why did media go that way? Why did education go that way? Why, why with the proliferation of technology didn't we have not an ability to kind of curate some expertise and value. What, what really happened? And, and really what we also should probably consider this morning is postmodernism, right? So if you don't, don't know what postmodernism means, it just means after modernism. You have to go to seminary to figure that out. And so really what you see is there's a time period in history that was referred to as modernism that was very idealistic, right? So in, in the modernism mindset, it was, hey, human history and existence is progressing in a beautiful way, technological advancements, medical investments, like we're, we're getting better and better and better. We're striving and heading towards a utopia. It was a belief in absolute truth. 
It was a belief that things could be hypothesized and researched and proven. And so people were all following this ideal and experts were, were trusted and leaders were trusted. The problem was a lot of those folks that had that trust and were pursuing their own version of utopia were crafting a utopia that was driven by racist, sexist, abusive practices, right? So think of Hitler, right? Here's my utopia. You know what's in the way? Jews. And so all of a sudden, modernity and that mindset, that quest of utopia is fractured with atomic bombs and concentration camps. And now we see just how awful humanity can actually be. And so things shift drastically as they would and should. And now, instead of optimism and idealism, we begin to think with skepticism. We don't trust institutions. We don't trust governments. We don't trust corporations. And when we lose trust, what do we do? We find some form of community, some tribe that speaks our language. And in that group, in that tribe, now we have somebody that is going to affirm our truth, our view of the world, and we're going to protect it. And so we've gathered in all these tribes for a lot of different metrics, a lot of different ways, right? We could gather based on political ideologies. We gather in tribes of Republicans, Democrats, gather in tribes based on our race, our gender, our socioeconomic status, all these different things that speak our truth. In the first part of post-modernity, we thought we could achieve tolerance and peace by just, hey, let's agree to disagree, right? This is, this is my truth. You do you, I'll do me. And let's just, let's just keep our own little protected barriers. But what's really happened is that as we've continued to develop in this sort of mindset, we've realized that our truths come into conflict with one another. And now when somebody doesn't share my common language, they're an enemy. They're a threat. They're a threat to how I might want to live, what I think is right, what I think is just, what I think marriage should look like, what I think uh, school should look like, what I think all these different things should look like. And so now I'm going to respond not with civil discourse, but in anger and animosity and a strive for power and coercion. And so now we're just angry with each other. And it's very problematic, right? And because as Nichols points out, it's fueled by this narcissism where we're just constantly told, you're right, and you can find everything to confirm that you're right. We have a real hard time letting go of it. So listen, I thought this was really telling and sad and sobering all at the same time. Remember, he wrote this several years ago. Here's what he says. He says, we must somehow overcome this narcissistic isolation and the tribalized ignorance it produces. We must master just enough humility and goodwill to start asking each other questions rather than delivering poor orations at each other. And then he goes on to summarize. He goes, if we don't, here's what's going to happen. Calamity, right? The only thing that pulls you out of that without humility is another world war, some sort of catastrophe where we realize the way we're living is so bad and so wrong, we got to reinvent ourselves. And as he's explaining that, listen to what he says. He says, this path is too dangerous of a risk in the wake of a global pandemic wrote that several years ago, a nuclear conflict, there may be no path left at all. I can only hope we recover our senses before then. We didn't. And so now we're feeling it, aren't we? At every level of society, 
We're feeling the anger and the animosity towards each other with our politics, with our schools, with our churches, with our families, with our friends, because this pandemic is unearthing all of it. We've got an anger problem because we have a trust problem because we have a truth problem. There's no truth that is anchoring us and settling it. And everybody can claim their own. That's the world that we live in. And so my question for us this morning is, how do we live in it well? Because here's what the Gospels teach us, right? Well, not even the Gospels. 1 Timothy 3.15 tells us that the church should be the pillar and foundation of truth. And so we as the church, now more than ever, have to figure out how do we embody truth and righteousness in such a climate. Right? And so that's what I want us to talk about for the next part of this message. How do we do that? How do you demonstrate truth in a society that is constantly not just rejecting it, but angry and against it? And so here's how I want to have this conversation. I don't want to talk to you according to whatever tribe you've put yourself in. And, and let's all admit we've done it, myself included. Okay, so I'm not talking to you this morning as a Republican, as a Democrat. I don't want you to hear this through the lens of a white man, a black woman, some racial identification. I don't want you to hear this as from a lens of orientation or age or socioeconomic. I don't, want you to hear, I don't even want you to hear it as an American citizen. I want you to hear it as a brother and sister in Christ. That's how I want us to think through this, okay? So several things that I would suggest to us if we're gonna live according to truth and righteousness in this context. Number one, self-evaluation. You have to examine your own heart. We all do. So let me ask you a question. When you encounter somebody that believes differently than you, how does it make you feel? When you think about a hot-button issue a subject matter that you tend to either avoid or run into, whatever, how does it make you feel? So like you, you hear things like Donald Trump, Black Lives Matter, um, wear a mask, don't wear a mask, start school, don't start school, abortion, immigration, same-sex marriage. How many other controversial subjects can I think of? How does it make you feel when you're entrenched on those views and you hear somebody that's going to disagree with you? So in my experience, there's this feeling that I get right here. And it's defensiveness. I can feel it. I know it when it's coming. I can hear what somebody's saying. I can, I can hear the criticism, whatever it is, and I can feel it rising up within me. Okay, if anybody else in here today has experienced that feeling, let me call it what it is. It is the seed of hating your neighbor rather than loving your neighbor. And if that is in you, repent and repent like crazy. I'm not saying you have to agree with somebody that has a different view. But if you feel a need to be defensive and create a sense of animosity or an attack, repent. That is not the posture or the response of the church ever, right? And so we have to seek that out. Like, like it tells us in the scriptures, 
right? What does Jesus say, right? Love your enemies, love your neighbor. Book of James, be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Psalm 139, search me, Lord, know me, see if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. The only way forward to to function in this society and to be ambassadors for truth is to search our own hearts and repent of that seed that wants us to hate our neighbor or be angry at our neighbor rather than love them. That's number one. Number two, what is your source? (laughs) What are your sources of information, of truth, whatever it is, right? I think part of the issue that we we struggle with is that we have that confirmation bias, and so we just flood ourselves with sources that confirm what we already believe, right? And so another question is, if you are consuming some of these sources, how are they making you feel? What are they stirring within you? Ask yourself that. Is it, are you listening to news or reading articles or having conversations with, with people that you see as trusted, and are they stirring up feelings of fear and anger? Or is it stirring up feelings of understanding and compassion? All right, so I'll just, I'll be very blunt. Listen, if you have Fox News and CNN on nonstop, turn it off. Seriously, turn it off. I've seen it. I've watched them both. They're shouting matches. They're screaming at each other. It's, it's not facts as much as it is, how do I cater to this audience to stir up fear and anger and keep them coming? Can I give you some alternatives? Listen to worship music. Turn the Bible app on and have it read to you and look at what that stirs within you. Colossians tells you to set your heart and your mind on things above. Now, that doesn't mean be uninformed. Still listen, still read, get news. Here's what I tell you. If you're gonna get sources of information that are gonna tell you what truth is in today's world, make sure you have multiple sources that are different, right? That are gonna give you competing and different views so you can consider both sides. Make sure that if you read something or see something, you actually search it out and see if it's credible, right? And here's the trick, because here's how conspiracy theories work, right? People are gonna tell you this isn't true. And so now all of a sudden you hear, well, this might not be true, and it just kind of further embeds the conspiracy theory, right? Do the hard work of searching if it's actually true. If you're not willing to do the hard work, then don't hold to it very tightly. That's what I would tell you. But have multiple sources of information, Let them be fair and balanced. Make sure they're credible. But then ask yourself, is what I'm putting into my heart and my mind stirring up fear and anger or understanding and compassion? Third, what is your answer? Right, if you think about my own heart and then you think about your own um, sources, then your question needs to come, what is my answer to these questions? What do I think is just? What do I think is right? What do I think is true? in these scenarios. And I want you to ask yourself, are your answers having more to do with power or relationship? Because our tendency a lot of times is to gravitate towards power. See, here's what the devil wants to do. He wants to put us in camps and have us fight. He loves that. All right, so let me give you an example. Let me just stick with controversial topics. Let's talk about abortion for a second. All right, so what he wants to do is put you in camps. Pro-choice, pro-life. Now fight, right? And so we do. And a lot of times the reason we fight is because our answer is for power. 
So let me be very clear, just personally for a moment, to make sure I don't confuse any of you in here, okay? As difficult as that subject is, I'm, I'm not for abortion. I have an adopted son, okay? But let me just clarify. If you have a conversation about this subject and your hope and your answer is legislation, Roe versus Wade being overturned, Supreme Court justice nomination, defunding Planned Parenthood, your hope is power. That's what you're hoping in. If your questions are rather, man, how do I help young girls that are in that situation? How do I help somebody heal that's had to go through that situation? How do I help speak truth into what love and intimacy actually looks like? How do I combat sexual assault? How do I walk alongside somebody that's in a very difficult situation? Now your hope is relationship. And can I tell you, the gospel almost always leads us to desire relationship over power. So when you think about what it is you're, you're fighting for on any issue, what are you asking for? Are you asking for power or relationship? Power just to make sure that your life stays the way that you want it or relationship so that you can build bridges into the lives of other people that might think differently. What's your answer? All right, then the next step that you gotta ask yourself is not just what's your answer, but what's your venue? Where do you wanna have these conversations? Where do you wanna talk about truth? All right, again, information draws us to online forums, which is great and they're powerful and they're, they're beneficial on so many levels. They are not enough. Right, please ensure that your venue is the dinner table as much as it is social media. Have conversations with people where you can look them in the eye. We all know the limits of electronic communication. We all know that it's, it's constructive in certain ways, but it only gets you so far. So have those conversations in other venues where relationships can foster and flourish. Right? And then when you have that conversation, the next thing I would suggest with you, listen. Listen, listen, right? Slow to speak, slow to become angry, quick to listen. If you're spending your time in conversations constantly thinking about what your rebuttal is gonna be or what your counter argument is gonna be or what your talking points are gonna be, you're not actually listening, right? We have to stop. Here, let me give you a good way to, to listen is don't just ask what somebody believes, ask them why. See, a lot of times we'll stop with the what. Hey, what's your view on this? What do you think we should do about this? And as soon as we hear people's answer, then we automatically like label and assume and judge and predetermine they're either in my tribe or they're not, they're either with me or against me. But maybe we should stop and go, but why? Why do you think that way? Why do you believe that? And that's gonna lead us into a greater understanding of who that person is and where they're coming from. And here's what happens when you have those sorts of conversations. I've shared this with you before, I believe. When you truly listen, we tend to find one of three things. We either find a wound, an idol, or a lesson. And let me explain what I mean by that, okay? The first one, a wound. A lot of times people believe so deeply and so passionately because they've been hurt. <laughs> they've been wounded. They've seen the, the bad side of the other view, and so they want to guard against, it's a defense mechanism. So if we can understand where people's wounds are, what we discover is they don't need to be argued with and judged and, and ridicule, that just further deepens the wound. What they need is healing, what they need is love, what they need is understanding and compassion and empathy. But we might find an idol, and by that I mean somebody's clinging to something that is wrong, they've been led astray, right? They're, they're, they're living in a manner that's unhealthy. 
And so if we find somebody that's clinging to an idol, again, they don't wanna just be judged and ridiculed. The way that you lead somebody out of idolatry is showing them the truth and a better alternative through a loving relationship, right? You say, hey, can I show you something different? Can I show you something more meaningful? And you lead them out of that sort of grip that they have. The third one is a lesson, which means it's for you, right? That maybe their position is actually right. And you were the one that was clinging too tightly to a wound or to an idol. So when we have these conversations of listening, we have to be willing to actually hear to the point that we would be willing to change our view and our stance, and we would learn, right? So we have to listen. Let me close with this, okay? The last thing I would tell you is once we've done all that, right, that to me is how you foster the appropriate posture to be an ambassador of truth and righteousness in today's culture, right? That you wanna be able to have the opportunity to truly have that self-evaluation and introspection and make sure your heart's in the right place. You wanna be able to, to have a trusted source of information, which is the word of God, that it would guide your steps. You wanna be able to have answers that lead to relationship rather than power. You wanna be able to have appropriate settings where those relationships can flourish. And then you wanna listen deeply to where they are. And then when you've done all of that, stand firm on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be unwavering, be un moving from the gospel, right? We can hold our views and our beliefs on what we should do in this pandemic, on, on what we should do with gathering in public, what we should do about politics and race and all those different things. We can hold tightly to them. We can be passionate about them, but never hold more tightly to those things than to the gospel, ever. We hold tightly to Jesus. Why? Because when he was the word that took on flesh. He is full of grace and truth. He told us, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And as he told Pilate, I am here to testify to truth. And everyone who stands on the side of truth listens to me. And what is that truth? That truth is that we live in a broken world. It doesn't matter if it's modernity or post-modernity, pandemic or no pandemic, sin has infected us all. And because of that, we have this pride that makes us want to lead into a confirmation of our own biases, that we get to determine right and wrong for ourselves. That's the sin of the garden that we don't wanna to listen to a higher authority, that we wanna be our own God. And that creates the separation that has given birth to this brokenness that we are surrounded by today. And when we see that brokenness and we try to fix it and we know all these things that we try to seek, then none of them work. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus sees us. God sees us so rich in his love and he sends his one and only son. And Jesus says, this is the way. This is what it looks like to have mercy, to have compassion. This is what is right. This is what is good. And if we would believe in him and follow him and see that his sacrifice on the cross forgives us for all of our sin, he removes all of our sin. And what happens? He gives us all of his righteousness. And it is the righteousness of Christ that guards your heart from every evil that might be assaulted against you. It is the righteousness of God that allows us to stand firm, not because of who we are or what we've done, but because of what Christ has done for each and every one of you. And if we trust in that gospel, he restores us to the right relationship with God the Father, and we become his church, a pillar and foundation of truth. That's 
how we prepare ourselves to live within this world. Be unmoved, unwavering to the gospel. Radically loving our neighbor in every situation and in every circumstance. That's our invitation. That's our responsibility. So if you haven't ever had a chance to know this truth and to give your life to it, do so today. And if you have, and you're trying to navigate your way through this world, look to your right and your left, like we talked about yesterday or last week, and recognize that we are a part of an army, not of different tribes of people that think differently than you, that you have to war against and try to convince. You're sitting next to and you're standing next to brothers and sisters all around the world who have stood on the truth of Christ. So let us stand firm and be anchored in his armor. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we acknowledge and we confess the challenge of living according to truth in a, in a day and an era of misinformation. We confess the times that we've grown defensive and we have tried to, to argue our way out of things. Or Father, we've, we've treated people in a way that is less than what you would desire us to treat them. Father, the times that we have fallen victim to lies and deceptions. And, and God, what we want to acknowledge this morning is that those things happen as a result of just the schemes of the evil one that can so easily lead us astray. And so help us search our own hearts and find and rediscover the hope that we have in you. And Father, when we have those impulses towards anger, may we not give the devil a foothold, but may we respond with love and compassion and grace and understanding to all those who we meet. Help us to seek to know them. Let us desire relationship more than power. Let us desire love rather than animosity. And Father, when we encounter all these things in this world that create unknown circumstances, change that can stress us, things that we weren't unprepared for, Father, may we still be able to stand because we have you. Father, remind us of the goodness of this gospel this morning, and may we champion it. Let the hope of Christ be our battle cry. May it be the armor that we adorn ourselves with so that once again, the message of hope that we find in Christ would be declared, lives would be changed, hearts would be stirred, and this earth would be renewed. Father, it is in Christ and in Christ alone that we make this stand. He is our truth. He is our hope. And to him we worship this morning. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.